Hey everyone, I am Farah Kimji and you are listening to the Futura Talks podcast. I believe the future will be built by those who see opportunity where others see uncertainty. It will be built by people that don't look like the traditional leaders of our past, but by women and individuals from diverse backgrounds that see the world differently and who are driven to make it better for all. This podcast will feature these people, self-made leaders and entrepreneurs that defy odds and are motivated to build a better future. We will also share practical advice for how you can unlock your full potential as the leader of your own Futura. Now, let's jump into today's episode. everybody. I am so excited for this week's episode featuring Cheryl Song, the co-founder and CEO of Reina, a co-living and apartment rental platform that leverages technology to make renting and living easier for the new generation of renters. I met Cheryl before she founded Reina when she was specializing in executive search, talent strategy, leadership succession, and board services in the commercial real estate sector across North America and Asia. Cheryl is also the chair of the board for Street Haven, the oldest women's shelter in Toronto. She is the recipient of the W. Galen Weston Top Entrepreneur Award and the EY Women in Tech Award by Next Canada. She was also named as the Peaks 2022 Emerging Leaders for Startups and Tech as one of the up-and-coming young leaders shaping Canada's economy, culture, and society. Cheryl is a dynamic and very driven individual, one who shared her vision for Reina with me casually over a drink, and less than three years later, Reina has launched in Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal, partnering with some of the biggest real estate landlords, developers, asset management, and private equity companies with plans to expand across North America. To say that Cheryl is impressive is an understatement. So I'm really thrilled to be able to share her story with everyone today. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Farah. It has been so long. It's so good to catch up with you. So great to have you here. So Cheryl, I know a little bit about you, but I'd like for you to tell our audience, you know, a bit more about you and, and let's go back a bit and go to your childhood and, you know, what were you like as a child and what did you aspire to be when you were growing up? Oh, wow. Okay, we are going that way We're back. going back. Yeah. Okay, all right. So I think like for me, I have always been an extremely curious kid. And I would say if you ask my kindergarten teacher or, you know, people who knew me when I was a child, everyone would tell you I was probably one of the naughtiest kid you would have ever encountered. I'm always up to something. And yeah, I got kicked out out of five kindergartens by being way too naughty. Yeah. And so that's how I was like, you know, as a child, I grew up in, in China. So in that kind of environment, everyone is very straight laced and everyone is very studious and all the child, you know, forced to be really well behaved. And I'm always trying to disrupt the system, you know, challenge the teachers. And, you know, I remember the first time, the first kindergarten I got kicked out of that. And, you know, I remember organizing a group of kids. And we dug a hole under the fence and I organized 20 kids all escaped the kindergarten. 
So since from a young age, I have been up for no good. <laughs> Uh, let's call it disrupting because like, you know, you're still disrupting even today, but in such a positive way. So did you know back then, like what you wanted to be when you were young, like, let's say like at seven years old, did you have any aspirations of what you would be in the future? That has changed so many times. I remember when I was a kid, somehow, you know, like I always just wanted to do something that is very interesting. And I was never interested in like, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a scientist. It's always, you know, I watched a movie. I want to be a detective. And I remember watching the James Bond movie and I was like, wow, like that lifestyle is so cool. Can I be a female version of James Bond? So it's always like something exciting that has always like intrigued me. Well, what's interesting is I don't think we've really had a female James Bond yet. So, you know, you're so young. This this is just the first act here. So who knows, right? Maybe. (laughs) But you're certainly up to some exciting things. So, you know, tell me from sort of your childhood and growing up in China to then coming here, you know, tell me about that path and, and sort of, you know, the whole story leading up to right before you started Reina. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I was born and raised in China until I was about 16 years old. And so at 16, you know, my family decided to, you know, apply for immigration to Canada. But, you know, immigration takes a few years. So, you know, we decided that it's probably better for me to, you know, start learning English earlier. And then so I did my high school in Singapore. And then after, you know, finished to Singapore, my family moved to Vancouver. So that's when I, you know, also moved to Vancouver, and then went to UBC, and, you know, came to Canada then. Oh, wow. Okay, so you came to Canada, you're here, you know, you're sort of new to the country. What did you kind of start doing for, you know, work? What was your first path that you took when you got here? So when I got here, I was actually never finished high school. I don't think a lot of people knew this, but I actually never finished high school. So, yeah, so how the system works in Singapore is because English is not my first language. And then so for me to be catching up with the curriculum, with the system, so I have to repeat a year. And then when my family got the invitation from Canada, I, you know, we have a deadline. We have to move by a certain date. And then also Singapore's curriculum is the British curriculum. It's also different from the Canadian curriculum. So when I came to Canada... I realized if I will be going back to high school, I will be two years behind my peers. And so that was, you know, I didn't really want to do that. So I was able to figure out a system in the Canadian education system that you are able to bypass actually finishing high school doing the traditional way. You just have to get grade 12 math and grade 12 English. And then if you take certain courses at a community college, and then you're able to transfer to a university. Oh, wow. So, so I kind of figured out oh, wow. how the system works. I love works. it. I love it. Disrupting. You just disrupted the whole education system with your path. I love that. Yeah. So I kind of figured that out and then pretty much spent six months and took all the necessary courses at a local community college. And I was able to apply to UBC through the university transfer program. So I got into UBC without finishing grade 12. I love it. That's awesome. So what did you study at UBC? So I studied history 
And I would say like, I wasn't career oriented at the time because, you know, I was new to the country. I was very intrigued about the culture. I really want to fit in. And then it's also the first time, you know, I am a grown up. you know, I get to wear whatever, whatever I want. And then in Singapore, you have to wear, you know, a uniform. And so it's in China. So, and everything is super strict. It's the first time I ever experienced freedom. So I was very interested in like the culture and then also, you know, new friends and new environment, university, and then also, you know, getting my first job. And then, so I wasn't super, I didn't pay a lot of attention academically. So the reason why I chose history is just something I enjoy. And then also something I find relatively easy because yeah, so, and it's usually essay based. So I find that really interesting. So I wasn't really thinking about what kind of job I can get after. I was more focusing on having fun and more focusing on, yeah. So that was, uh, you know, that was kind of how my university life is like. I was kind of focusing on exploring and then going on exchange and doing a co-op, you know, even when I was doing a co-op term, it wasn't really for you know, getting work experience. So in the future, building up my resume is more just like, oh, I get to wear a pencil skirt and like heels and go to an office. That's so cool. So I was more focusing on having fun. I love that. Well, clearly, you know, you got that out of your system because these days you're working crazy, crazy hard. I think still having fun. But so when I met you, you were, you know, in recruitment. What led you and how did you sort of get into that, you know, now executive recruitment? Yeah, so having a history degree, and I remember my fourth year, that kind of dawned on me, oh, okay, I'm graduating soon. And everyone started asking me, what are you going to do after you graduate? And then, so at the time, I remember telling everyone, oh, I'm going to law school, because that seems like just an answer that shuts everyone up. But I was never really interested in going to law school. I did apply and then, but, you know, I ended up getting a job offer. I applied for jobs in Vancouver and also, you know, in Asia. One thing I was really, really good at is actually interviewing. So pretty much every single job where I got an interview, I pretty much got an offer from them. But the the challenging part is getting the interview because, you know, I have a history degree, which is and also in Vancouver, there weren't that many job opportunities. So I got a job offer as a, to be a journalist in Shanghai and to cover China news and cover Indian news. So that was really exciting and interesting to me. You get to go out, interview people, meet new people. That's so cool. So I took that job offer and then moved back to Shanghai after I finished UBC. And then soon realized the journalist job, it wasn't me going out in the field interviewing cool people. It was kind of a glorified translator. And uh, so I was in that job for about two weeks. And so during that time, because I'm really outgoing, I'm very extroverted. And then also, I think my childhood characteristic didn't change that much. I was always very curious. So I'm curious to learn from other people and network. So when I first moved back to Shanghai, I just went to a lot of networking events and then just naturally asking people questions about like, oh, you know, what got you here? What, what, you know, how did you get here? So I remember having a coffee chat with a friend of a friend who just started, 
at a company. And so I was like, yeah, like, let's, I want to learn more about your career paths. And after talking to him, he was just hired as, you know, a partner at a global executive search firm called Corn Ferry. So I have no idea what that is. I have no idea what is executive search. I have zero knowledge on business. So I had a coffee with him. And the next day he offered me a job. And I was like, but I don't know what you do. Like, I have no idea what this is. And I remember he told me, just come to the office, talk to the HR. They will tell you, you know, all about it. I was like, okay. And the next day I went to, I went to their office. And I just remember that feeling of walking into that office. It was, you know, one of those skyscrapers in the, you know, the fanciest part of the town and the whole office was white. I walked out. I almost feel like I walked into heaven, like, you know, the beautiful bouquet and then everybody looks so sharp, looks so posh. And I'm like, wow, like that is amazing. That's like what happened? One of those movies. And like a perfect so, place for you to wear your pencil skirt. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I can dress up every day and come here. And then so, uh, yeah, basically I took the job and, you know, talking to the HR, he, they were very eager to hire me. And I was like, well, like I have never felt this, you know, desired, like, because before I was a history degree, I was struggling getting interview and, you know, they doubled my salary on the spot. So I kind of just accidentally joined executive search without knowing what is executive search. And well, what's interesting is it actually still gives you that ability to network and connect with people and, you know, have those kinds of experiences that probably you wanted from the journalism career that you didn't have, but you now get a chance to, you know, interview people, network with them so interesting. And then I guess it, you know, you're with Corn Ferry. And when I met you, you were specializing in real estate executive search. So tell us how you sort of made that transition into being a bit more specialized within that vertical. Yeah, absolutely. So at the time at Corn Ferry, I was focusing on luxury goods. And in Asia, it was probably the fastest, the steepest learning curve I have ever experienced. Because it was uh, the partner who hired me is a new partner to Corn Ferry. And he has a, he is extremely intense and has a reputation of being really, really tough in the industry. So he was actually struggling to hire people from the same field. So that's why he hired me. But the benefit is it was just me and him. There is no associate, senior associate, managing associate in between. It was literally analyst and the partner. So my first mandate was to hire the president of Louis Vuitton China and I remember going to one of the meetings and everyone was talking about P&L, P&L. And I'm like, yeah, P&L. And I remember leaving the meeting and took out my phone and Google, what is P&L? <laughs> and, I'm an accountant, so this is really funny <laughs> for me. Yeah, what is P&L? And anyway, so that was kind of two years, really steep learning curve every day. I will feel like wake up at, you know, I would naturally wake up at 6 a.m. and just feel jazzed about going to work because, you know, I get to call like the CEO of Chanel, like, you know, interview them and, you know, to assess if they're a good fit for this company. So very quickly, you know, I realized every day the way I talk to people changes. I was able to buy it, you know, after two years, I was able to discuss high-level strategy about, you know, luxury goods industry in Asia with the top executives. So that was really fun. And then 
I realized I have to come move back to Canada because otherwise my permanent residency that my family spent a lot of effort on getting would expire. So, and so initially Corn Ferry relocated me back to Vancouver. And then, so I moved back to Vancouver 2014 in April and quickly realized after two years in Shanghai, I really became a different person. And a lot of my friends who went to UBC with me, they are pretty much content in their job. They are still exactly where they were two years ago. Well, for me, after two years in Asia, after such a fast-paced environment, I realized I became a different person. You know, if I took the job at Corn Ferry in Vancouver, I can pretty much foresee the next 10 years what will happen. I will have a close group of friends. I will probably still be working at Corn Ferry because, you know, it's a prestigious firm. And that really scared me. I can foresee what will happen in 10 years. Mm -hmm. That really, like, terrified me. So I also, like, you know, took two weeks and started networking, talking to different people, and then got a job offer from another search firm in Toronto. And uh, they offered to relocate me. And actually, I've never set foot in Toronto before. And I took the job offer. And I remember they gave me the offer on May 29th. Okay. And the plane ticket, you know, they bought was May 30th at 6.30 a.m. So wow. I pretty much packed overnight and then got on a plane and then landed in Toronto. Wow. And this was with the real estate recruitment firm then? No, no, no not okay. yet. It was, a, it's called Robert Half. So Robert Half was oh, starting yeah. up their executive search division. So they were looking for someone with more of executive search background. So for me, it was just, I want to leave Vancouver, but I still need to be in Canada because of permanent residency. So Toronto is the biggest city. So that's a stepping stone for me to be in Toronto. So I took the job opportunity and came here. And then at Robert Half, you know, you must know this because you have a finance background. They are specialized in finance. So at the time, my specialization was more CFO searches. And instead of having industry, uh, you know, be industry focused. And then after two years, you know, being with Robert Half Executive Search, you know, good experience. I was able to learn how people do business in Canada. It's very, very different from, you know, the environment in China. But what I was missing is I don't feel like I was getting the industry knowledge. So in China, I was able to, you know, talk to people about strategies on luxury goods. And in Canada, because there's no industry focus, I feel like my job became very, very transactional and I wasn't learning as much. The one industry that always intrigued me, and, you know, it's always real estate. Because I remember coming to Canada, you know, the newspaper is always, there's a real estate bubble. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, at that time, 2014, and I just remembered, you know, thinking to myself, comparing to the, a few cities that I lived in, like Boston, Singapore, Shanghai, just comparing the real estate prices. And in 2014, for a one-bedroom condo in the heart of the city, it was around, you know, 350 to about 400k. Yeah. And for a 25-year-old, I was able to afford to buy my own condo without much help. So I was like, where is the bubble everyone is talking about? It seems really reasonable to me. Yeah. And so that was like what got me really interested in real estate. 
Mm-hmm. So I decided, you know, I need to have an industry focus, um, you know, so that's when I joined the real estate focus search firm. Wow. So interesting. Right. And I think you've just kind of like really acted on a bit of impulse and intuition, like a combination of that throughout your career, which is so interesting. And, and that's where I met you then is like, you know, we're both in the real estate industry together. And, you know, it was kind of right before you were thinking of starting Reina, you were doing, you know, this executive recruitment with real estate. Can you kind of describe to us what was happening right before you decided to go out on your own and launch Reina? Like, was there this light bulb moment or were there a series of moments that really led to your decision? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say I have always been pretty entrepreneurial. So even when I was working in executive search in Shanghai, I always had a startup on the side. And even in university, when I was a history major, you know, I always have like a startup idea that I'm always working on. And in university, I remember I was doing this thing called Infinite Closet. It was kind of like a dress rental and it didn't work out. Even when I was working, you know, at Robert Half, I always had a startup idea that I'm like, kind of working on and I go to all the startup, you know, conferences, tech TO, just like something about that environment. I really enjoy it. Just like innovation. I'm sure you are the same. You know, we both kind of left commercial real estate and, you know, pursue startup. It's just you go there, the energy, like people are talking about idea is really, it's really fascinating. It's and it's super like inspiring and motivating. These are like people are going out there and starting things from scratch, right? Like nobody's handing them a job and they have this like random idea and they're just going and pursuing it. So like you, you know, I love that you kind of always had that entrepreneurial sort of spirit and that you would do that. Like some people really have a hard time having a side hustle, but for you, it sounds like you did it and you like, whether it succeeded or not, wasn't even necessarily at that time the thing, it was more that you needed, it sounds like you needed to fill that cup almost to have something else that you were focused on outside of the nine to five. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like Reina is actually a little bit different. And for Reina, it wasn't like, yeah, I have this idea, let's do it. And it was very gradual. It's very much like it happened naturally. It wasn't, you know, me and my co-founder sitting around a table and be like, let's brainstorm what's the biggest idea. And well, I actually remember, right, when we met, you had just kind of started investing in real estate yourself. You bought a property. You're like, I'm going to rent out a couple of rooms. I'm going to go furnish it with some stuff from Kijiji. Like, like, what is this girl doing? Right. But so tell us kind of like, you know, that part of the story, because that's when I met you and I was like, okay. And then we didn't really talk for the last couple of years. And now you've got Reina. So love to kind of like, have you walk our listeners through like how it really evolved and how you got into it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like you mentioned, I started to look into investing real estate myself because I realized my condo has appreciated in value. I was able to refinance my condo and took the equity out and purchased that, you know, investment property. And then obviously as a new landlord, I was like, how do I maximize? How do I value add my property and then get a better return? And so one idea I had was, you know, basically something I always wanted because I moved so much is, you know, moving to Toronto as a young woman at the time, you know, 
looking for a place to live, it was extremely difficult, like selecting roommates. So I always dreamed of having, you know, like a woman only co-living house, you know, kind of like, kind of like a university dorm, but for grownups that you have like-minded girlfriends that you can, you know, do things with together. Can I move and in? Obviously- <laughs> like it sounds so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then that's always what I wanted. And, but, you know, never wasn't, wasn't able to find. So I was like, okay, maybe I can turn my house into a woman only co-living house and then, you know, get a few like-minded tenants. And then, you know, and that's basically how it happened. And it got rented out over a weekend. Three artists moved in. They turned one of the room into art studio and they were host events like our workshop and they would invite me. So it became a really enjoyable experience for me personally, you know, as a landlord, not only like financially, I was able to do really, really well, but also, you know, I really became friends with my tenants. And then, so that kind of was, I was doing that on the side, but I had, you know, at the back of my mind, I was always like, but why can I do more? But one thing that was holding me back is obviously I don't have the financial means to just purchase like 20 houses and let's do this, right? That has always been something holding me back. And then I think how Raina really like, you know, started, it was 2019, I think that summer, that's kind of when we caught up. Yeah. I started, I started to talk. We were working out at F45. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I do. I do. I remember seeing you like at 6 a.m. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were always at the 6 a.m. class. Now at that time, I just started to like, think about it more and more and also co-living it was like a big topic that summer. Mm-hmm. And I remember going into, you know, one of those like workshops and people are talking about co-living. And I would just feel like a fire inside of me and feel like, okay, if I don't do this, and in two years, I read in the newspaper and someone else, you know, formed a woman-focused co-living company, I would not be able to live with myself. Like I will have so much regret. So I started talking to people more at the time. And then one of my really good friends from the industry, you know, you probably, uh, you probably know her as well. Um, you know, Katie, mm-hmm. uh, Karen Dow, yeah. uh, Katie. Mm-hmm. And so she, we co-founded for the future of real estate together. So we have always been like, you know, industry acquaintance, colleague. So at the time she was looking for a place to live. And so she actually reached out to me to ask if she can become a tenant. Oh, wow. And then, wow. yeah. And then I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like it's fully leased. But if you want, we can do a project together. And so that's really how it started the conversation. And then so pretty much like we just went for it and we rented a townhouse together and then she moved in. And then basically we were able to, you know, turn one of the den into a bedroom. So she moved into the den and then, you know, found four other roommates, four girls. They were all living, you know, having their best lives and then like, you know, going for movies, drinks after work. So Katie was able to live there for free and I was able to, you know, make some money on the side. So, you know, she come from, you know, also a finance background from real estate private equity. So we were like, this model is actually really lucrative. Let's do another one and another one. And then before we know it, you know, we had five in three months. So that's when I was like, wow. And were you guys just refinancing your properties and pulling out equity or how were you funding all the projects? 
At yeah, the time. no, so no, so we weren't buying buildings because that would take way too long. So the way we would do it is like we would tell, you know, a lot of our friends in real estate have their own investment properties. So basically we would be like, hey, we will take it over and then we will sublet it to, you know, tenants, and then we will pay you the market rent and then we will manage it for you. And so oh. that was kind of just to see if this model works. works. Yeah. And then yeah, and then it, at the time it did. So that was, it gave, you know, I just feel like I have to do this. There's clearly a huge market for it. And that was in January, 2020, I started pursuing this full time. And at the time it wasn't like, you know, this will be prop tech startup or anything like that. It was just like, let's just keep going with this model. Cause it was, yeah. we were able to uplift like about 30 to 50% of the rent and then pretty much it was kind of risk not like risk free yeah. completely but it was cash flow positive from day one and then also the risk wasn't super high because you know wow if we can't lease it up pretty much we lose the deposit so yeah that's basically how it got started yeah i mean toronto has been hot for a lot of time but you started at a time where the rental market was really hot right and people were looking for properties. And, you know, I know with Raina, I, I was checking out your website and you can rent for as low as $1,000 a room, which is really, really tough to find that in, you know, downtown Toronto or some of the downtown metropolitan cities that you're now in. But what I love most about the story that you shared with between you and, and Katie, you guys did your customer validation. Like you were the test case, you know? You proved out your own hypothesis by just doing it. You know, some people will do surveys and they'll do, you just went and said, let me try this out. Let me rent it to a group of women and see, see, you know, what happens. One part of the story that I like too, though, that I want to hone in on. And I remember when I met you, this was when you had just, I think it was on the heels of you renting out that first property to some of those art students. And you even said, oh, they're having this art event and and you kind of had this idea to sort of do these themed types of, you know, renting to groups of women that maybe are in the same like type of, you know, whether they live in, want to live in the same neighborhood or they're in the same type of work or school or whatnot. And you even kind of furnished all the common areas for them. So was that just like, you know, was this all by design or, you know, how did you, like, I think the first time you did it, it just sort of happened that way. But the second time, were you trying to get more and more specific with that to be very honest yeah we were just winging it it was chaotic it wasn't that well thought out to be honest at the beginning it was very much like we both had corporate jobs at the time so our weekends and and evenings will be katie driving a u-haul and me hustling with like kajiji people to purchase secondhand furniture and we were like just basically movers and uh, so, and we were very budget conscious. So like, I remember the first, the townhouse that Katie moved into, we pretty much furnished the whole place, like for 500 bucks. It looks really, really good, but everything is secondhand. When we actually give up that property at the end, and then when we sold all the furniture, we actually made 500 bucks just by selling everything. <laughs> and uh, so, so at the time it was just chaotic. And I feel like what, I'm glad that we didn't analyze it. I'm glad we didn't think too much of it at the beginning 
because we kind of just did it. I think it's a part of, you know, my personality as well. I kind of just want to do it and just go. And then Katie is the opposite of my personality. So she will, you know, make sure like the risk and everything is that we are exactly the opposite. And so, which is a good balance to have, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, if I can give one advice to aspiring entrepreneurs when they first, uh, you know, starting a business, like I would say before the few startup ideas that I had in the past, like I was working on the side, none of those worked out is because like I always gravitate towards this kind of as at the same type of co-founder and uh, you know which they are similar to me right like when we start talking about ideas and it was just the most like the most amazing thing ever we would just dream about the future what could happen vision and this will be so cool like this is best thing ever and then no one is practical <laughs> No one is like planning yeah. it. No one is actually want to do the boring work. Executing. No one want to execute. Yeah. <laughs> so with KD, it was, and that's another reason why Reina actually worked out is because we are very different. So this time around, I obviously learned from my prior experience. I want to make sure we are a good fit. So before we officially decided this could be a business, we, I made her do all the personality assessment and I did, did them too. So we compared our matrix and then to make sure that we are complementary to each other. And, you know, we talked about roles and responsibilities and had a shareholder agreement and everything was super clear, defined upfront. So, and that, yeah, so that was, you know, a reason why we were able to keep going. I think this is such an important part of your story because I've also explored a few things and a few partnerships and a few opportunities to launch, you know, businesses with people. And the essential breakdown in those was the incompatibility of our styles. And like you said, it's all roses when you're in the idea stage sometimes. But when it comes down to, well, what's the vision of how we actually do this and get this to market? And how do we execute on it? And what role do I play? And what role do you play? You know, there can be a lot of conflict if you're not aligned. So I love that, you know, you guys met, you tested it out. You both had your corporate jobs. I think you left first and then, and then Katie came later. Maybe talk a little bit about that too, but you know, how you guys both made the decision to kind of like say, okay, we're all in now. And was it, you know, was there enough cash flow coming in? But I think that part, you know, I will echo that if you are going to decide to bring a, you know, co-founder or work with a co-founder and and start a company with someone doing those tests, it sounds silly. Like how are we going to do a personality test to decide if we're going to build a company together? You absolutely need to do those kinds of things. I know some founders that even go to therapy together, you know, just to like manage or prevent any issues and that kind of thing. Yeah, we have, we go to therapy together. And we are good friends, you know, like we started doing therapies together when we were at, you know, like how everything was going great. And so I think that is really the key is most startups didn't work out. It's not because of the idea is a lot of the time is, you know, co-founder conflict or even maybe not just conflict because I feel like doubts. You really have to support each other to get through some of those like moments because it's not all roses and you know butterflies. It could get really, really like really, really down sometimes. And oh, you know, yeah. it's yeah. pretty much a roller coaster every day. 
And so you really have to have a strong like support system, right? And co- your co-founder is more serious than a marriage, I would say. Yeah. I was just going to say that because A, you know, you spend way more time together. You're waking hours together, but then your finances are tied together. Your future is livelihood is tied together. It's absolutely like a marriage, if not more so. Yeah. These days you can get out of marriages more easily than you can get out of a business. (laughs) Exactly. And then also your identity, right? Like, you know, usually if you, people ask you, what do you do? I'm an entrepreneur. What is your company? So your identity is tied together as well. So I think like having a strong co-founder relationship is absolutely critical. This is the most important person in your life. You know, I'm definitely on par with a spouse and, but sometimes it could be a little bit more than a spouse because you know, like spouse, there is the emotional ties. And before, like romance is romance, right? But when it comes to a business partnership, it's, you know, it's profit. And, you know, it's the, is your company's future. But in the meantime, your identity and your basically blood, sweat and tears. So it get, it's, that is the most important thing, I would say, in starting a company. So I think, so I think like for us at the time when we first started, we were, one thing, you know, also gave me a reassurance that this will work out is, you know, when we first started doing those houses together, we are two girls, right? And then, you know, we are furnishing everything ourselves. And so she's driving the U-Haul. I am like messaging people on Kijiji, trying to bargain with them. No, $10, like. you know, and we were like spent Sunday just basically moving furnitures and we both have like basic jobs, right? And then, and so sometimes we would drive to like suburbs like Scarborough and then picking up a chair and then the next morning back on our fancy pencil skirt and, you know, heels and going back to Bay Street to our office. And so one thing that reassured me was one time, I remember it was December, we had a house that was, you know, I had tenants moving in. And at the time, it was pretty much that we have to manage a back to back move in and move out. So the previous tenant move out, and we have to time it and have the U-Haul ready, the furniture ready, and then move everything in the morning, clean the whole house, and then our tenants are moving in the afternoon. So that day was a snowstorm. And then I like, blizzard december 1st 2019 and then so her car got towed and then the cleaning lady like slipped so broke her back so couldn't come to do the cleaning so she had to go get her car back then we had one hour so she was like scrubbing the toilet i was scrubbing the the oven and then but we got it done and so that was the moment I was like, wow, like, I think we can do business together. This is the partner. She gets it. Yeah. She gets it. Like, she will be there. And then we both were there. We both were like, okay, this needs to be done. Whatever it takes, let's get it done. And we got it done. And so, yeah, so that was kind of the moment. So when I left, I didn't have a lot of fear. Because I think also it was, you know, I know that like, there is someone with me. And that is so important. And it also... January 2020, right? Like, what a great time to be starting a business. Yeah, and I know, right? But also, interesting time with what was happening in the rental market as well for you. So there were, you know, some might look at what was happening at that time, you know, especially after March. 
and see that, okay, rents were going down and this and that people are moving out of the city. But I think, you know, you guys, from what I know, capitalized on that opportunity. So tell me now, let's fast forward a little bit. You both left your jobs. You're doing this full time. You know, it sounds like it's pretty scrappy, right? In those first few years, and you're doing it all yourself to now you are now partnering with institutions and you're working on creating more of a technology enabled platform to do what you do, you know, so that you're not there scrubbing toilets and ovens and whatnot. But tell me about how you really, you know, in the last couple of years have transitioned from that initial scrappy, let's, you know, do this ourselves to where you are now. Absolutely. I think the scrappiness is one thing I want to protect. No matter how big we grow, I will always want to have the initial entrepreneurial spirit because I think that is really, really important. So I would say 2020, that year was crazy because, you know, like you said, pretty much we experienced a real estate life cycle that normally people will experience in 10 years. We shortened that in 10 months. And it, January was like the height of the market. Like we never had any worry like about leasing up a building. It just fly off the shelves, like, you know, at the time. So then obviously COVID happened, market flipped upside down, Airbnb flooding to the long-term rental market. Private landlords are scared, dropping rents every day. It was a bluff storm. And then like, and also tenants, border closure, students are not coming back. So it was interesting for us. It was a blessing very much because we pretty much immediately stopped the the model that we were on because we were master leasing buildings and then basically subleasing it out. And then we immediately stopped that. So gratefully at that time, we were very grateful that we only we were very small. We had five five properties and it was all fully tenanted. So risk wise we were okay. But then we need to figure out a new way, right? Like how are we going to adapt? So it was a blessing disguise because we tried out probably like 10 different business models. We partnered with, you know, smaller landlords. We did every single type of, you know, we did detached home. And then we built a house from scratch with a small developer. And then we tried to raise a fund and we tried to become a property management company at one point. And we did like walk-ups you know, storefront retail walk-ups. We did everything in 2020. And then and then 2021, it was, we rebranded ourselves because I think at the beginning, it was, uh, as you remember, the company was named after my dog. Yes. Ting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ting. Not a great name. Cute dog though, but not a great name. Yeah. And uh, so then, you know, 2021, January, we launched as Reina. And then that's when we start partnering with the institutions. So, you know, like how, how this happened is, you know, really due to the blessing of 2020, because we really have to look at things long-term now, because we can't just focus on the present anymore because, you know, what COVID kind of rocked our world. So then we were thinking, you know, we need scale. And then also by partnering with different individual landlords, smaller developers, one thing that was really hard to manage is the renter's experience. Because we want to focus on, you know, initially the vision is for a woman like myself when I first moved to Toronto to find, to have a good time looking for a place and then get along with her roommates. But because of the individual landlord, sometimes, you know, when COVID happened, a lot of them were like, can you ask everybody to move out? Like, I want to sell my place. I want to sell my place. 
you know, our tenants just moved in, right? And then, or something is broken and they were reluctant to fix it because they have their own budget, but for the tenants, it's not a good experience. So then we were like, okay, if we really want to do this, we really need to partner with, you know, the big companies who have a system and then who also have, you know, purpose-built rental buildings. And then also this way, although the initial contract was hard to negotiate, hard to get, but once you get that, you have a bigger scale. Yeah. So that's when we start looking at things a little bit more long-term, mm-hmm. like five years, like 10-year plan. And then that's when we start partnering with, with the institutions. And what it, I think what's great about that model is, you know, they, those institutions, they probably start off with you on one building, but they have a portfolio of buildings across Canada, usually, you know, a lot of these bigger institutions. So it, that gives you the opportunity to expand and scale as well. Like, let's try this in one test market or one building. And then I'm assuming let's try it in more buildings. Yeah. If it works well. But also they have like the number of properties too for you to be able to do it. And if you're going to come in and help, you know, sort of like enhance their leasing process and, you know, attract a good demographic of people who you would actually want leasing your places, it's a win-win, right? So such a great, you know, what I love though about what you saw is where everyone saw problems in terms of what was happening in the real estate space, you were looking for the opportunity in it. I mean, you faced your problems too, right? Like your whole business model basically just blew up in your face. But, you know, this is what it takes when you're an entrepreneur in those early days, you have to be able to pivot very quickly and not wait to like necessarily like do all of this customer validation or this or that, just like go out and try it. And I think that's think you've been really good and very successful at doing that. So now, you know, here you are, you've established some partnerships you know, tell me about how you're funding everything. Are you still bootstrapping? And yeah, how's absolutely. that so we are process going at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So we are bootstrapping. And uh, one thing that I feel like our team is very strong, at, like the scrappiness of uh, being an entrepreneur, like at the beginning of the story, I said, spent $500 furniture place. And then after one year, sold it for $1,000. <laughs> so that's something that you know, our team is very, very good at is using, leveraging existing limited resources and then create the biggest amount of outcome. So, you know, it's an 80-20 rule is spending 20% of the effort, getting 80% of the result. And that has been our mantra and how we, how we run business. And then also I would say, you know, like we were lucky that our business model is pretty much, you know, revenue generating from day one, even when we were just doing, you know, small properties, master mm-hmm. leasing ourselves, it was, we had cash flow. And then so with Reina, when we launched in January 2021, it was kind of a different approach because we were like, we wanted to build, you know, a global rental platform for the next generation. And then I'll, there's a prop tech component to it, but we mm-hmm. didn't really spend any money in building the technology until six months later because we want to validate what to build first. And then, so I think that's, you know, one thing we were really grateful is also we have revenue that we were able to self-sustain. And, you know, with getting outside funding, especially, you know, I think at the beginning when you just have an idea is extremely difficult, especially, you know, in our space. And then we are two minority women. And unfortunately, in venture capital world, like, 
you know, English is my second language. I clearly don't look like some of the other founders that, you know, were be getting funding to. It's two guys with a computer science background doing a SaaS company is something they're familiar with. But two Asian women doing rental platform and without the, you know, none of us can code is a very different, you know, um, demographic. So, and a tech build is super expensive, right? So when you're in this stage where you're not even sure exactly what you're building, I think that like people get very glamorized by raising capital, but you have to know where it's going. You are giving up some equity to do it, but you have to know where it's going. And so for you guys, what is the technology enabled component of your business? And what is the vision of what that platform will look like in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So the our future vision is we want to be the most trusted real estate platform for the next generation. So what we are focusing on is the the experience. So the you know I can kind of break it down into three parts of the technology component. The first part, that part we already built it. So right now we are we are actually launching next week. Oh, exciting! Yeah. So that mm-hmm. part is the property and roommate matching component. So we, okay. you know, we are collaborating with a university to, you know, strengthen our algorithm in terms of roommate matching. So we wanted to, you know, for a 22-year-old girl moving to Toronto, you know, just finishing her degree at Queens, got a job at EY, moving here as an entry-level accountant, she can't afford to live by herself. For anyone who make under $80,000 in a market like Toronto, Vancouver, you can't afford it. So then they're going on Craigslist, Kijiji all of those messy. This was my, yeah. this was my experience. I moved here in, you know, to Toronto in 2006 <laughs> and started at PwC. And I was just lucky that my sister had a friend that she articled with in law school in Windsor. And she was like, I think you should live with her. Cause we were both looking for one bedrooms, downtown Toronto. She was doing her articling. I was start- doing my articling at PwC. She was at law school, but And we had met once or twice at a party and I decided to live with her. I mean, thankfully it worked out. We lived together for three years and we're still really good friends. Almost 20 years later, I'm dating myself, but that's what it was. That was the process. But what would you do if you didn't have a friend like that, that you could, you know, or a friend of a friend in my case, a friend of my sister? What do you do? Yeah, that was me when I first moved here. It just, you showed up at a random <laughs> yeah. house and then look at each other, be like, I guess you can okay. be my roommate. All right. And, and so, so that's what we are building is to streamline this experience. So then young Farah can come to Reina, fill out, you know, a list of questions, and then you will be matched with a compatible roommate. And one of a legitimate rental building that's owned and operated by a by a real estate company, and then so we ensure the application process, the roommate matching process, and then also even afterwards, you know, in the future, if there's any disputes or okay. if there's any issue, you can still come back to us. So that is the first yeah. part of the technology, you know, platform is roommate matching, tenant matching, rental application, and you know, payments okay. and all of that will be done online. And then the second part that we are building now is tenant mm-hmm. services. So, you know, like think about if you are going to, I'm actually in Montreal right now, mm-hmm. and I'm in one of the Reina apartments yeah, at the be- moment. It's really nice. And then so if, yeah, you know, it's beautiful. <laughs> and but if you're coming to go into a place to travel, you can book with Marriott or book with Ritz-Carlton or Sonder, depends on your budget, you know what you are getting. 
But for long-term rental, the experience portion, tenants' experience, there's very little emphasis that plays on that. So what we are building next is, you know, after the lease is signed, then the tenant can come back to Reina, purchase tenant insurance, purchase a furniture package that we set it up for them, and then also, you know, book cleaning services, and then explore the neighborhood and, uh, you know, to see what other coffee shops, stores that are owned by women, owned by BIPOC that you are, you resonate with, with your value. And, you know, we are launching a Reina Pass, so then our tenants can get discount from those businesses. And we also be able to, you know, promote and, you know, create a bit more engagement of the community. Awesome. So that is the second portion and also a resolution center. So in the future, if, you know, people's lives are becoming more and more mobile and they need to, for example, you know, Yang Farah got the common project in, you know, in Montreal then you can go to the resolution center and we can help you to find a lease takeover, lease takeover or sublet. And we can also relocate you to one of our buildings in Montreal. So then this is the second platform and the third platform. And because of all the data we collect from our users. So from the first part, when they are submitting a rental application, we know their financials, we know their lifestyle. We also know their personality. And then the second part, we can kind of also understand their experience better. Like what is, you know, did they purchase a furniture from us? Have they been paying rent on time? You know, is their life really mobile? Are they constantly moving? And then the third part is we want to build out, kind of map out the real estate buying journey for the next generation. So then they can clearly see what would that lead to home ownership. Oh, interesting. And so we want to leverage all the data we have and leveraging AI and machine learning and build out a personalized home buying journey, you know? So then, because when it comes to home buying, you know, I think a lot of people have this misconception about Gen Z and millennial just don't want to own a home, yeah, which is not true. They're just transient. They want to work remote and they want to travel the world. And no, people want to lay down roots, you know? People want to own homes. It's just, yeah. they think they can't afford it. They can't afford it, yeah. But here's the thing, though, like you worked in real estate. So did I. When it comes to real estate, it's about leverage. But I think just like to get people to really understand how that works, because I think, you know, for especially Gen Z, a lot of my employees now are Gen Zs. And when every single when I mention like, you know, owning, buying an apartment, they absolutely are inspired to become a homeowner. But they are like, oh, I need a million dollar. I'm never going to make a million dollar. But you don't need a million dollars. You need a down payment. And then you can leverage the rest. And then that builds up your equity. I think this part, it gets really muddy. And there is like different, you know, fintech company that are focusing on, you know, rates, like mortgages, different parts. In terms of like a holistic picture, like I have yet to find one that does really well. So we kind of wanted to, you know, build out own the entire real estate experience of the next generation. This is really cool. Very exciting. And I think, you know, a lot of people play in those three areas, but nobody's really saying, let me bring this all together because there's value in having it sort of under one roof. And A, it creates a better experience, overall journey and experience throughout the lifetime of that person in your property, because you're right, they're not going to always rent forever. 
right? And eventually they're going to want to buy. But if we can kind of understand and help them build, you know, a history and a good track record and path towards home ownership, I think it's absolutely amazing. It's funny because our previous guest is the founder of Equity Homes and is also sort of looking at paths for inclusive home ownership. So this is, you know, for people who maybe are not either getting passed over by traditional lenders, right? So there's absolutely so much opportunity in that space. I love to see there's a bit of a theme going on there. So you've talked, you know, sort of about what you envision that future to look like. You've built out part one. Overall, like, how do you see the rental market changing and evolving in the next, you know, five to 10 years? What do you really see? You're deep in the space. What do you see is going to be changing about how we've been doing it so far? Yeah, I think COVID actually helped, you know, definitely speed up the technology adoption of a lot of real estate companies. Even, you know, like I would say pre-COVID, a lot of the large real estate companies are still doing the rental application by paper, right? So crazy. Yeah, it's so crazy to think about. And now at least everyone has accepted DocuSign. I was just going to say, they think DocuSign is the revolutionary thing, but, you know, that's like, so dated in my mind even, but yeah. Yeah. So, but for real estate industry in general, it's, you know, it's conservative and I think definitely there's benefit to it. Like, you know, right now, as you know, the tech world is pretty turbulent at the moment, but real estate is still stable. Right. So, so I think like in the next couple of years, definitely we'll see a lot more adoption in terms of technology. And then also, you know, one thing I also want to mention, like putting back on my previous like executive search hat, like when I was doing executive search, yeah, I definitely saw a gap of talent in the real estate industry. So that's triggered by the recession happened in the early 90s, right? So for 10 years time, there's not a lot of talent coming into real estate from probably 1988 all the way till the late 1990s. So in real estate industry, it's either, you know, there is a succession planning problem too. So it's either the senior leader approaching like in their like 60s. And then the next generations are in their 40s, pretty much. Like there's a gap. Yeah. So. Oh, I felt that huge yeah. when I was in that space. So I think that will also play a huge part in pushing the rental market, the real estate market, becoming a lot more innovative. Because, you know, the late 30s, 40s years old, and now stepping into very senior, you know, very leadership roles in massive real estate companies. And they're thinking differently, right? So I would say like in the next couple of years, we will definitely see a lot more technology adoption. Even with our partners, now a lot of people that we partner with, the you know, they're in their early 40s and late 30s. The way they think about it is like focusing on the experience and then also like technology as well. So there's a lot more open-mindedness in real estate. Mm-hmm. And so- yeah. It's so interesting because I think for so long, especially like being in markets like Toronto, you could take four walls and you could lease it up with your eyes closed, right? Like there was 2% vacancy in the office market. And and now we're seeing people want so much more than that. They want a good concierge-like service to come along with their real estate, whether it's residential or office. And they want that process to be completely technology enabled, the process behind it as well as experience when living in it or working in it. And you're absolutely such a good, you know, perspective that you have 
from your executive recruitment days because that 20 year sort of gap of like, yeah, you know, everyone in there now, 30s, 40s, I'd even say like up to 45. And then there's this like missing middle, right? 45 to 65. The views of the 60, 65 plus year old men, and I say men, and I really do, some women too, but they really are still holding on to very antiquated views of how the real estate industry should be run, as well as, I mean, in Canada, a lot of the real estate is owned by just a few institutional players. So that's part of it. But as this second kind of like next generation comes into those leadership roles, you're right. I, and it's already happening, right? Like, yeah, even just the fact that you've partnered with, you know, some really established long-term players that have been around a while that see the value in a company like Reina is just such a testament to the times are changing. And I think you've launched in a time that is like open to it. Like the window is cracking open, but I think the door is going to be wide open very soon. And let's not forget Gen Z's have entered a picture. Oh yeah. When we are in COVID, you know, now like they are renters, right? And they are a different beats. Like they grew up in the world of Uber Eats. They want they want it now. They don't have yeah. time to yeah. wait for the pay for the rental application to be processed for two weeks. They are gone. You lost them. So everything is instant. They never did anything in, on paper, right? No. Like they grew up with a computer in their hand when they came out of the womb, basically. Right? Totally. Like, or an iPhone or something, right? So it is a different world. So I think it's such an exciting time though to be, you know, a young real estate startup in this space when everything, when there's now a little bit more appetite for what you're doing. You know, tell me, obviously you've, you've shared some of the challenges along the way, but what would you say, I'd love to hear kind of what was one of the biggest challenges you've had as well as one of the biggest sort of like, moments of like, oh, wow, like something that was really rewarding that you experienced as well. Oh, my God, that this could be a separate episode. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, talk to a 30 second yeah. version. Yeah. Okay, so 30 second version, I would say the biggest challenge is definitely the mental challenge. And I would say like, because you have problems every single day, like every single day, I wake up, there will always be some problems. <laughs> and uh, so the actual, like, when you can actually quantify it, then you can focus on a solution and you can focus on how to solve it. It's actually not really yeah. a challenge. It's just a headache. You know, you just have to do it. But when actually the biggest challenge is just self-doubt. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, especially running a startup, you kind of have to be a little bit naive, I would say. Like, you know, at the beginning, it's like, this will work. It's a belief. Like, I think, you know, faith and fear is basically the same thing. You can either have faith that this is going to work or you can be fearful. And I think that is the biggest challenge because in running a startup, every day it's unknown. There's nothing predictable. Anything can change. You know, COVID is a testament to it. Like your world can get flipped upside down. And then so is to hold on to the belief and then hold on to the faith. And then also I would say how to like overcome those challenges and give reward is like, because there will be days, just nothing is right. And then the team morale is down. And then you just feel like you don't even know what to do next. And then in those moments, like, you know, I think for, especially for me as a new leader, I would say, like, it's the first time I'm managing a, you know, a team and you really have to give your team and give yourself 
some pat on the back and just focusing on one or two like positive things. You know, we have this ritual in our company on Tuesday morning, we do a morning gratitude session. So you talk about three things that you're grateful for. It could be really, really small. At the beginning, I was like, ah, so cheesy. And, but it actually really helps because like in those some days, you really just have to be like, wow, you know what? I am really grateful for my team. Like I'm really grateful everybody showed up. Everybody's, you know, still believe in this company. And, you know, some days it's like, you know, I'm grateful that I'm healthy. I'm grateful that I am able to have a nice meal. So is to give your team and give yourself a pat on the back and just be like, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I love, and we'll get to your, you know, most fulfilling moment, but I will say, I loved what you shared because funny enough, I have a list of my future topics. And one of them is, do you have faith or do you have fear? That's like my, one of my topics I'm going to riff on because I do solo episodes as well. And then the other one is about self-doubt. So I think like those things, when you're an entrepreneur, it's like a daily, right? Like daily, it's a daily thing. Hourly. Hourly. Like even as we're speaking, I'm like, is this episode going okay? Like, you know, we have doubt, right? We probably are both sitting there thinking that. Yeah. Okay. So tell me now about, you know, something that in this journey, that's just been super rewarding for you. I think it's, it's also like every day, right? Like it's seeing the progress that you make and it's really not like a mega moment that's super rewarding. And we actually recently went on Dragon's Den. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then, okay. We need 30 seconds on that experience because it hasn't aired yet. Yeah. So you can't okay, tell us what happened, sure. I'm sure, but you can tell us about the experience. Yeah. For sure. So I think, like, you know, like it's not obviously those moments count. Like, you know, we were last year, we were featured on the front page of Global and Mail Report on Business. Mm-hmm. And those moments are like big moments, right? Like, wow, like that happened. So, so awesome. But I think, like, the most rewarding part is just like the little thing. Like the daily little things, like, you know, when we first started, I reached out to a a group of students and we were looking for an intern, you know, to join us, you know, just to do some small project. And then she's still working for us. We actually took her on this business trip together and we had dinner last night and she was like, honestly, like, I am like, my parents told me they're so proud of me. Like this experience has been amazing and I have learned so much. I feel like. I have become a different person in the past like year by working for you guys. I'm so grateful. And I was like, I'm not usually a super like emotional, like touchy feely type of person, but like I literally felt like I was tearing up. So those moments Mm. that you really see your team is growing and then they are having a good time. They're feeling inspired. And that is the best feeling ever. Yeah. Yeah. When you know you're impacting and it it just takes one person, right? I got a nice note about someone who listened to my failure episode and they're like, they just really resonated with it. And it was just like a simple little LinkedIn. I was like, this just made my day because all I want is for one person to take something away from this podcast. And I love that, you know, you have a team of people that you can do that for every day and you are doing that for every day. So that's, it's just so, so amazing. Okay. We're going to round this out now. Yeah. What would be, you know, some advice that you have for, you know, our listeners here today who are considering a path of entrepreneurship? You've given lots of good 
like nuggets along the way, but anything that you haven't shared that you think is important for them to know? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for, for entrepreneurship, like don't think about, you don't have to have the perfect business plan. And also one mistake that I made personally before, and also I see a lot of, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs they make is that they kind of like what their ideas, they feel like this is a secret. I can tell you, I can tell anyone because what if they steal my idea? But one thing I learned is idea is so cheap. Anyone has an idea. And, uh, you know, Reina business model is not that complicated. It's a simple business model, but to do it well is so hard. Every little thing is, you know, it's really pieced together by little details, every little detail you have to master. So don't be afraid to tell people about your idea. Because if they're going to copy it, they're going to copy it anyways. And if they are going to do better than you, you might as well know early, right? And, you know? Yeah. And if you're already on your path to executing on that idea, it would take like at least six months for someone to say, I'm going to go do this and do it. But like, you know what I mean? I think we have to think in terms of abundance and not scarcity of ideas, right? Exactly. So that's such a good such a good takeaway because I, as an early entrepreneur was like that, I'm like, I can't, I can't such a good it. idea. I yeah. have now, I call it my like trunk full of ideas. I haven't done yeah. any of them. They're just sitting there. Yeah. I've told lots of people about them and some of them I've seen versions of something close to it come out and others I'm like, Oh, this is still a good idea. Nobody's done this one yet. And then sometimes they're just an idea that, you know, there's a reason why nobody's done it. You know, because it's just not good. So, you know, I love that tip. I think that's really good. Yeah. Okay. Last final question, because I love this one is more like selfish for me, but sure. And hopefully for our listeners too. But I love to know what you're listening to these days, whether it's like a good, you know, book, audiobook, podcast. What do you tune into? What's in your ears? So, I used to be a huge podcast junkie. I used to listen to every single business, like Tim Ferriss, how I built this, like, like massive list, like every single business podcast out there, I have listened to them. And then so as business books, like I have read all countless business books and listened to them. Actually, recently, I stopped listening to business podcasts as much. And I think recently, like, you know, when I'm listening is more enjoyable, you know, pleasure for me and to take my mind off things. So, you know, now I start to read a few novels and then I haven't read any novels probably since high school, I would say, because I was very much focusing on like, oh, I need to learn something. You know, I can just be like reading a story. And but actually now I start to feel like those are very, very important. You want to zone out now, like sometimes too. Yeah. Zone out and then also just creativity, right? Yeah. You can just, because, you know, when you are so focused on business, you can sometimes get tunnel vision. Yeah. And especially a lot of, everybody can give you some advice, you know, like you can take and also be really careful of whose advice you take. So I think mm-hmm. now the books I'm reading and then it's very much like the surrender experiment more like philosophical okay. related yeah. books and then also like novels. And then that I can... Uh, you and me are so similar because I yeah. did years of how I built this and just like loved yeah. it. I still listen to it here and there if there's like a good story, but Surrender Experience Experiment I've read and the other one, Untethered Soul is like another great one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's like 
the soul of money yeah. is another yeah. big one if you haven't listened I to agree. it. I agree. And I think thinking about, you know, your life and your purpose beyond just like how to get, you know, business launched, I think is such an important part of it. And some of those books bring that out. So I love that. Okay. Surrender experiment, everyone. <laughs> I love that one too, because I remember after I read it, I was like, I'm just going to surrender to this. I'm not going to like force anything. I'm just going to see what happens if I just fully surrender. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's the best thing you can do. Right? Absolutely. And sometimes you really just have to let go. Because I find when yeah. you're so focused, and then when you're just like, I need to get, there will be, it's ups and flows, right? There will be moments like getting a product launch that you need to focus. But if you're running a business every single day like that, it's, you're going to get burned out. You can't. you can't. So there will be moments you can just, you just have to be like, okay, you know what? I'm turning my phone off. We are not in the business of saving lives. So I can't afford to do that. And I'm going to turn my phone off. I'm going to shut my computer off. I'm going to go for a nice walk and just enjoy an afternoon. And then after that, when I came back, those problems either disappeared on its own or I have a new perspective. You have clarity. Yeah. I have clarity. So I think like for aspiring entrepreneurs, having listening to those business podcasts for me was hugely helpful, mm -hmm. inspiring. And but when you're so deep in it, you need to tune out. Yeah. <laughs> you need to take a step back. You have to start being able to hear your own voice. I think that's where I've gotten to is like when I'm constantly having someone else in my ear, it's like, okay, I got to like find my own voice and maybe listen to like things that will inspire creativity. So I love that. You know what, Cheryl, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> Clearly we could like, you know, make this a super long form podcast, like, but like rich roles, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to spend three hours today, but I'm so glad you came on. I would love to have you back when we, you know, have more to update on Reina's progress in the future. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story with our audience here today. No problem. Thank you so much for this is so fun. We should definitely catch up, you know, soon. yeah, for sure. Let's not wait another two Sounds years. <laughs> exactly. No, definitely. All right. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Futura Talks. I hope it has left you inspired and motivated to pursue your dreams, find your calling and follow your heart in your life and business. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean so much to me if you would consider leaving a review and better yet, sharing this episode with someone who will be inspired to start building their own Futura. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and I will see you next week.